Amen. Amen. I, I tell you, we probably should have put a warning label on the service today. Uh, the worship, wow, incredible, incredible. And, and, and it's, uh, it's been three weeks since I stood up on this platform to share God's word with you. And, and I kind of feel like Jeremiah. Uh, uh, when, when Jeremiah was talking about God putting his word on his heart, and Jeremiah says, even if I try to hold it in, I can't. Your word is like a fire in my heart. I can't hold it in. And so I, I am really excited about the day. And let's do this, the story, chapter four. <coughs> Excuse me. And listen, Maple Grove, from where I'm standing, all I can say is, what an awesome journey the story has been so far. Wow. I mean, we're only a couple weeks into it. We're going to be doing this until September. Just imagine what God is going to do between now and then. And remember, like I said back on January the 13th, if we really lean into the story, we will have a comprehensive, big-picture understanding of the Bible like never before, an understanding that will serve us well in life and in this journey to become who we were created to be individually and as a church. And, okay, and I'm curious, who out there, preparation for today's conversation, read chapter 4 of the story? Lift, lift your hands up if you did. All right, that's awesome, awesome. And, and next week... Okay, we read chapter 4 this past week. Next week, we're going to read chapter 5. All right, this is not rocket science, right? Chapter 5. And, and, and if you don't have a book, I encourage you to pick one up. We still have some left at the Welcome Center for the, the price of 5 bucks. You're not going to find them $5 anywhere. Any place that has 5 bucks, we kind of like got them all, all right? And so you can grab one for 5 bucks. If you're here visiting with us, we'd like to, for the first time, we'd like to take your connection card. We want to give your family a copy in addition to this awesome and cool coffee mug, all right? And if you can't afford one, we'll give you one, all right? We want you to have this book. We want you to have your own copy of the story. And Now, one of the things we have seen in the first few chapters of the story is that God, uh, the all-knowing sovereign king of the universe, loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things, blessing the world through them as he engages them in a life-transforming relationship with himself. In chapter 2 of the story, we have Abraham and Sarah, an elderly, infertile couple who are chosen to give birth to a nation. I mean, think about it. They're in their 70s, and for decades, they not even had, haven't even had one kid, and yet God taps them on the shoulder in their 70s and says, you know what, I'm going to use you to build a nation. And last week, we saw God use a spoiled teenager from an extremely dysfunctional family, a guy who was, he was his daddy's favorite, uh, he was attacked and sold into slavery by his brothers. He was accused of attempted rape. He spent some years behind prison bars. He was abandoned by his friends. Yet God somehow elevates Joseph to become the second highest guy in all of Egypt in order to preserve this newly formed nation through which the Messiah would one day come. And, and I love what Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20. And I don't know if any circumstances are coming at you, any people are coming at you. Uh, if so, maybe God wants you to hear this verse today. He, Joseph is talking to his brothers. They're like freaking out, dad's dead, and now Joe's going to kill us. And you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Maybe circumstances, maybe people, they want to harm you. They're not looking out for your good, but you know what? God is always looking out for your good and my good. Yeah, God chooses the most unlikely people. And yeah, Isaiah wasn't kidding when he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And listen, as we continue on this journey through the story, uh, we're going to see God running the same play over and over again. I mean, if that post pattern works and gets you a touchdown, why do something else? Over and over again, God's going to keep using ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and he's going to bless the world through their lives. Here's a point. If you're feeling kind of ordinary this morning, if your resume is not all that impressive, if you feel like an unlikely candidate to do anything significant for God where you work, where you go to school, where you live, in this community, in this world, look out. Because you might just be the person that God taps on the shoulders and says, hey, Fred, hey, Dan, hey, Lynn, there's something really awesome that I want you to do. What do you say we jump in and do it together? In fact, that's exactly what we see happen in chapter 4 of the story. As God unfolds his perfect will and plan through another very unlikely candidate, an 80-year-old fugitive tending sheep in the wilderness, a guy named Moses. Yeah, yeah I, I know that 3,500 years on the other side of Moses' story, I mean, Moses seems like the perfect candidate. I mean, for those of us who have watched Charlton Heston part the Red Sea, or, or we, we sung along in the Prince of Egypt, all things are possible if we believe, right? We're like, obviously Moses is a perfect candidate. No wonder God chose him. But understand, believe me when I tell you, it made no sense to Moses or to anyone else at the time. And the way I, I want to attack chapter 4 of the story is, is I want to I first tell the lower story and then talk about the upper story. And remember, the lower story is all the junk we go through down here in the earthly life. It, it, it's being in your 70s and still being childless. It's uh, growing up in a dysfunctional family. Uh, the, the lower story is being attacked by your family and abandoned by your friends. Uh, the lower story is when you do the right thing and you still wind up in prison because of it. The lower story, you know, it's that bad report from the doctor. The lower story is all the struggles you're going through in your marriage. The lower story is this addiction that you're trying to break free of. It's the stress that you feel in life that keeps trying to weigh you down. It's the lower story. But there's an upper story. And the upper story is God's perfect, unstoppable will, plan, purpose, and story that is always unfolding. The upper story is God always being active and on the move, working through all the junk in our life. It's how our sovereign God, in spite of all the difficulties and calamities that come our way, it's how our sovereign God, in spite of all our own stupid decisions, still is able to weave Everything together for his purpose and for our good. Wow, what a sovereign God we serve. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> and, and listen, get this. If God did what he did in and through those lives a thousand years ago, we can be certain 
He can do the very same thing today in our stories. I understand if your lower story is not so hot right now, if your lower story is crashing and burning, hold on, don't give up because the author and perfecter of your faith and of your story, he is not done yet. There are still many chapters left to be written. And who knows, the best chapters may start, may start hitting the page this very week. So don't give up. Our God is good, and our God is always up to something. Man, anybody else there love that upper story? That there's more going on than what we can see? I mean, that's what the book of Revelation is about, right? I mean, life down here can sometimes be pretty bad. But guess what? There's more going on. God is doing something, and he's preparing a place for us, and one day we're going to be with him. Now, now, now Moses' life, it can be divided into the three, three uh, chapters, three parts, or three acts. And each one is about 40 years long. And, and, and I want us to pray and before we jump into Moses' story. And one reason is because, you know, you know, if you've been around church for a while, uh, you've seen Charlton Heston on TV, you, you watch The Prince of Egypt, you know, most of us know the story of Moses, right? We've heard it. And we could be thinking like, well, you know what, all right, been there, done that, nothing in here for me. You know, God doesn't have a word for me. And I'll tell you, if that's the spirit we come to, then we'll leave with nothing. But if we come to the spirit of, you know what, God, your word is powerful and true. And God, I believe you still speak today. And God, you know what? Sometimes my life is dry and barren, and I believe that you can speak to me today. And if you ask God to speak to you, you ask God to give you a word, I I guarantee that God will speak words of truth into your life. So I ask you to pray palms open, and let's let's just pray. God, we love you. We're in all of you. Your love never fails. You never give up on us. We may give up on ourselves. Maybe there's someone in this room who's already given up on themselves. They're already cashing in the towel, thinking you can't use them, that you're done with them, that things will never be different. God, that's a lie of the devil. And Father, I pray this morning that we hear your voice. God, I pray that you fill this room with your presence and your glory. I pray, God, when we hear you speak, our response is, yay, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And, and God, I ask that you would help me to say what you want me to say in the way you want me to say it. God, we love you, and and we come expecting to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, okay. Life of Moses, Act 1. And and if you you know anything about Moses' story, you know that Moses was fortunate to even be alive. You see, at the time of his birth, the Israelites were living in Egypt. Remember, Jacob brought his whole family to Egypt because there was a famine, a worldwide famine, and because his son Joseph was like the number two guy in Egypt. And and so when they came there, they were welcomed and honored guests in Egypt. And chapter 4 of the story begins with these words. It's page 43 in the story. It says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies, fight against us, and leave us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And a question, 
Was God taken by surprise by this? Nah, not at all. I mean, check out what God said a couple hundred years earlier to a guy named Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. You see, our God is never taken by surprise. He knew this was going to happen. He said it was going to happen. And understand, if God says something is going to happen, it is going to happen. Guaranteed, mark it down, take it to the bank. And in like manner, if God tells me and he tells you that in this world, it will be like Disney World every day, flowers and roses and pretty birds flying around. No, he didn't say that. He said, in this world, you will have what? Trouble. Okay, so we shouldn't be surprised when trouble happens, right? Because he, like, he said it's going to happen. Uh, Peter was talking to some Christians who trouble was being dumped on them in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his sufferings so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Okay, so Pharaoh, he's afraid of God's people. Hey, I'm going to make slaves of them. I'm going to press them. I'm going to crush them. And the more he tries to crush them, the more they grow and grow and grow. So the Pharaoh has to roll out plan B. And plan B was to throw all newborn babies into the Nile River and kill them. What a brutal man. What a hateful plan. Uh, understand, when God sees a helpless little baby, God says, I have to protect that baby because life is precious to me. And because who knows, that baby may be the very baby I raise up to save an entire nation. But when the devil sees a baby, when the devil sees a helpless child, many times the devil says, kill it, get rid of it. Because life is not precious to me, and, who, and he's afraid that maybe that baby will grow up one day to be the next Billy Graham or the next Mother Teresa. Life is precious. And, and listen, just as this cruel plan it begins to out a, a, a married couple from the tribe of Levi, they have a baby boy. Now, it's not their first child. They already had a three-year-old son named Aaron and a 10-year-old girl named Miriam. And now, Moses' parents were... They were godly people, and there was no way they were going to listen to this decree. There's no way they were going to kill their baby boy. And so they hid their baby boy for three months. And this was a huge act of faith on their part. In fact, in Hebrews 11, they're commended for it. And we read in Hebrews 11, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Uh, but eventually Moses grew and, and maybe the sound of his cries got louder and they began to be concerned that you know, maybe uh, he'll be heard and not only do we endanger his life, but we have Aaron to think about and Miriam to think about. And so we read in Exodus 2, 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, so it would float. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And imagine what that would be like for that mom. Take that baby, three-month-old baby, put him in the basket. But understand, Moses' mom, very wise, very godly, and she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew the Pharaoh's daughter always took baths early in the morning, and she floated it just upstream 
from where the first jar would be. She put her 10-year-old daughter, Miriam, on the banks, and she's just watching it float down, watching it float down, watching it float down. And then we read in page 44 of the story. The first daughter went down to the Nalta Bay, then her tenants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said, one that her dad said should be killed. Then the sister asked, I love this, then the sister asked for his daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse him, the baby for you? I don't know, I can check Craigslist, and you know, maybe there's a mom out there who would like to take care of a baby, I don't know. Yes, go, she said. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, you know, it kind of looks like you, and, and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Is that, like, awesome? Is that, like, so God? You know, she, in faith, she put the baby in the basket, and God gave it back to her. She got, it was only gone for, for a little while. And, and, and then, the, then the Pharaoh's daughter is paying to raise Moses. And we read, when the child grew older, some virgins say weaned. It's anywhere between the ages of 3 and 12. We don't know. She took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So again, you know, she, she finds him. At some point, she takes Moses home. She goes to her daddy. And sometimes little girls can wrap their daddies around their finger. Daddy, 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 can I keep him? Can I keep him? Can I keep him? And he thinks, well, yeah, what harm could one little Hebrew toddler do anyway, right? Yeah, sure. Sure, bring him on in. And... Uh, and that's so God, isn't it? Let's kill the Hebrews. And, and he brings into his own family the one who would one day cripple his entire empire. And Moses was raised as Egyptian. Stephen, in that great sermon in Acts chapter 7, said this, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. I mean, he had the best education in the world at the time. He, he studied languages. He, he studied writing. He studied architecture. He studied military strategies. He studied literature. He, he studied leadership. He studied math. Do you think that was ever put to use like as he built the tabernacle, as he wrote the first five books of the Bible, as he stood before Pharaoh, a, a, as he led a million people across the desert in battle? And act one of Moses' story ends this way. One day after Moses had grown up, he's about 40, didn't grow up till he was 40. Wow, okay. Some of us are 50, not grown up, right? Uh, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. That's a lot of sand. Uh, the next day, he, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, hey, hey, why are you fighting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? That Moses was afraid. And thought, what I did has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Life of Moses, Act 2. Now, there's not much ink devoted uh, to Act 2 of Moses' life. You know, even though it's 40 years. Actually, there's only 10 verses. You know, 40 years. 40 years where Moses goes from the palace to the wilderness, where he, where he goes from the prince of Egypt to a tender of sheep. I mean, talk about a tanking lower story. Rejected by his own people, a murderer, a man with a price on his head, a fugitive, a runaway. I mean, there's no more servants at Moses' beck and call anymore. But in the wilderness, a few good things happened. I mean, he married into a godly family, and he had a couple of kids. 
But listen, hear this. Even in the wilderness, God is still working his plan and preparing Moses for the greatest work in his life. Even in the wilderness. And by the way, that is often how our God rolls. Here's the point. If you find yourself in the wilderness this morning, if life for you is kind of dry, kind of barren, kind of hot, kind of sandy, kind of dusty, understand the sovereign king of the universe is still at work. He is up to something. Paul put it this way, right? In Romans 8, 28, you know, God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's why the wilderness, James says, can actually be a time of rejoicing. Remember he says, consider pure joy whenever you're in the wilderness, whenever your life is tanking, whenever things are difficult, because what? You know God is working, and pretty soon you're going to bust through that wilderness, and God's going to do something incredible in your life. And listen, you never know when God's going to bust through and do his thing. Amen. And Life of Moses, Act 3. And this gets a ton of ink. I mean, from Exodus 3 all the way to Deuteronomy 34, 137 chapters in all. And as as, as Act 3 of Moses' life opens up, he's 80 years old. And I love old people getting called by God. As as the clock keeps ticking for me, you know, I I mean, I'm at midlife almost, you know, because I'm I'm about going to be 120 like Moses, so I I don't hit midlife for another seven years. Um, But I, I love it. If there's breath in your body, God still wants to use you, right? If you're alive and breathing and if you have a mirror and you're concerned about your neighbor, stick the mirror in front of their face, and if it fogs up, they're still breathing. And they may be sleeping, but they're still breathing. And so he's 80 years old. He's been tending sheep for over 14,000 days. 14,000 days of desert heat, desert sand, and stinky-smelling desert sheep. I mean, every day is like the last day. Just another day in the hot sun with smelly sheep. Bah, bah, get out of here. Okay. I mean, he's probably counting the days until the final chapter of his story is over. Okay, God, you're done with me. It's over. Just when is it going to end? Put me out of my misery. But little did he know that he was tending sheep in God's neighborhood. Or that he was about to be invited to take part in God's plan of deliverance. Or little did he know that when he woke up that one morning on day 14,532, whatever that day was, that when he went to bed that night, that nothing would be the same ever again. Understand, we never know what our God is fixing to do. And listen, when the sovereign king of the universe, when God begins to act, when God begins to move, he can do things very quickly. I, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows that this might be the very week This, yeah, you've been out in the desert for a long time, but who knows? This might be the very week that God really begins to unfold his plan and his purpose in your life, helping you to become the person that he has always wanted you to be. It really could happen. That's our God. And we read, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I got to check that out. Dude, that's crazy. 
I've seen things burn, but that sucker's burning, and it's not burning. I need to go check this out. When the Lord saw that he had gone over the look, God called to him from within the bush. Tell me that wouldn't freak you out if a bush starts talking. I mean, let's be real. The bush ain't burning up. And then, I've never had a bush talk to me, right? He's going, hey, well, let me check this out. And I'll say, Moses, Moses. I mean, he had to be freaking out. Now it's a burning bush. Now I have a talking bush. Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Here, here, I, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Did you notice all the first-person pronouns that God is using? I have seen, I have heard, I'm concerned, I'm coming down, I'm going to do something about it. Understand, God's mind is set, his plan was in motion, failure was not an option, nothing would stop him, nothing would stand in his way, his people would be delivered, mark it down, it was going to happen, the redemption plan of God would go down just as God had it scheduled. And Moses is thinking, yay God, awesome, thank you, I am so glad you're going to deliver the people. Man, they're, a, they're having a hard time, God, and I just can't wait to see them set free. I, I just can't wait to see their faces. I, I can't wait to see them jumping and bursting with joy. It's going to be incredible. Thank you, God, for doing this. Thanks for letting me know. And then he hears verse 10. So now Moses, go. What? I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And what follows through the rest of the conversation is much like the honest exchange that you and I have with God when we feel inadequate for some task that God has asked us to do. And Moses says to God, who, who am I that, that, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Again, I think what is going through Moses' mind is the same things that goes through our mind when, whenever God calls us to do something that seems beyond our abilities. God, are you serious? Are you kidding me? Is this a joke? You are looking for Moses, M-O-S-E-S. That's, that's, you sure you're not looking for somebody else? Come on, you don't really think I can pull this off, do you? And actually, God didn't think he could pull it off, right? I mean, he never was depending on Moses' skill and power. He just wanted someone. He wasn't depending on Moses' ability. He was depending on Moses' availability to be a leader who would lead God's people. And notice that God didn't respond to Moses with a pep talk. He didn't send Moses to the center of you-can-do-it training in an effort to boost his confidence. He didn't try to pump up Moses' self-esteem. Come on, Moses, you can do it. And so God answers Moses' question, who am I, with five life-shifting words. I will be with you. I mean, it's, if, it's as if God is saying to Moses, Moses, stop worrying about who you are and start focusing on who I am and the fact that I am going with you. And Moses, if I go with you, everything is going to work out just 
fine. Bottom line, God and anybody else, God and anybody else is an overwhelmingly powerful, unstoppable team. Amen? But Moses is still not convinced. So he said to God, hey, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? I don't know your name, so I can't go. I like to go, but, you know, I just got some. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And notice God didn't say that his name was I was or that his name was I will be. He said that I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent me to you. That's because God is omnipresent. He's all present. If you go back 10,000 years in time, God is there. If you fast forward 10,000 years in future, God is already there. There is no place that God is not. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He can't learn anything new, and he can't be taken by surprise because he's already standing where we're going before we even get there. He's God, and there's nothing, and there's no one that can prevent him from doing anything that he wants. He's God. He's sovereign. He's in control over everything and in every domain. Understand, God knew that it was imperative for Moses to know who he was, that he was, I am. And the word I am is the present tense of, of, the, of the verb to be. And as God's name, it declares that God is unchanging, God is constant, God is unending, God is always present, he is always God. And understand, Mo, God was telling Moses, and he was telling God's people from that point forward. Because you see, it says in Exodus 3.15, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Understand, God was telling Moses and us that I am is the center of everything. I am is running the show. I am is all-powerful. I am is in control. I am is all-knowing. I am is the Savior. I am is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am is the owner of everything. I am is Lord. I am is the creator and sustainer of life. I am is more than enough. I am is inexhaustible and immeasurable. I am is God. But even after God's big reveal, when God said, move that bus, you know, here I am, Moses still tries to weasel out like you and I do. Well, what if they don't believe me? What if it's too hard? What if I get tired? <laughs> it's going to be tough, God. And God's okay, I'm, I'm going to, you can do some miracles that convince them. He says, hey, throw your staff on the ground. He throws the staff on the ground and becomes a snake. He goes, that's cool. And God says, pick it up. What? <laughs> pick it up? Picks it up, becomes a staff again. He says, hey, take your hand and stick it in your coat. He sticks it in the coat, comes out, it's full of leprosy. Sticks it back in, it comes out whole and clean. And he goes, and if they won't believe that, I want you to go down to the Nile River and I want you to get some water. And see, they thought the Nile River was sacred, the Egyptians. Get that water and take it out. When you pour it out, that water will be turned to blood. You know what God was doing? God was saying, you know what, Moses? I know you got a bunch of excuses. But I want to silence those excuses. You, you think I can't work through you? 
You think you can't make a difference with me with you? Yeah, you can. Uh, understand, it's in your notes, understand, God, understand, God, God never calls us without preparing and equipping us, never. And God will never send us to do anything without going with us. In Maple Grove, that was true a thousand years ago, and that's still true today. God will always prepare and equip us, and he'll always send us, but he will go with us. Now, I want you to notice that when Moses puts up all his excuses before the Lord, God never says, oh, Moses, you're so humble. I'm so encouraged by your humility. No. The Bible says that he's ticked, and he's ticked. Why? Because Moses wasn't humble then. He, he wasn't demonstrating humility. He was demonstrating self-focus. See, oftentimes, insecurity, it's not humility, it's pride. It's about protecting ourselves. Moses said, I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't think they'll listen to me. I don't think I speak good enough. I'd rather not go. Could you find somebody else? And where's the focus? I, I, I. But eventually, God breaks through and he gets it. And Moses becomes obedient to God, and he goes before the most powerful man in the world and stands before him and says, you need to let these two to three million people go. And understand, and you may want to write this down. It's not in your notes. We will never see the power of God in our lives. We will never see the power of God in our lives until we obey the word of God in our life. You know, sometimes we're like, hey, what, 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 why, why aren't I seeing God's power in my life? Well, because we're not obeying his word. And Moses obeyed God's word, and then God's power began to flow through him. And he goes to Pharaoh, and most people believe, historians, that this would be his half-brother, the guy he grew up with. And he tells him, you know what? You need to let my people go. A powerful moment. I mean, this is like Winston Churchill staring down Hitler and telling the parliament, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall never surrender. And this is Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall times 10 million. Moses looks at Pharaoh and says, I want you to let God's people go. He goes, oh, really? Thanks for asking. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? Hey, what are you going to do? I'm going to make it harder. I'm going to make it tougher. I'm good. I'm, we're going to stop supplying you straw. But your quote is the same. I, I want the same production with fewer supplies. Moses takes off, and the people say, thanks a lot, Moses. Thanks a lot, bro. Thanks for nothing. Uh, we got our hopes up. We thought God was in this, and now we got to work harder and sweat more. But Moses doesn't stop there. He keeps going to Pharaoh. Visits him time and time again and, and, and to try to get his attention. Sometimes it looks like he has Pharaoh's attention, but it never sticks. He refuses to let him go, and, and God unleashes ten plagues, right? The first plague is the, you know, is the Nile to blood, followed by the frogs. Frogs everywhere. Interesting about the frogs everywhere is when Pharaoh finally decides he's prideful. and he, i got to get these frogs out of here. I, I want to eat my bagel, and there he was, you know. He was in my taco. I've I, I got to get rid of these frogs. Moses, get rid of him. He goes, okay, Pharaoh, you tell me when you want them gone. Anybody know what he says? Tomorrow. 
tomorrow. He could have had him gone right then. No, I'm too prideful. Tomorrow. I, I'm going to live with this. I'm too prideful. I know what you want, God, but you know what? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. And, and then comes the plague of gnats and then a swarm of flies and then de- diseased livestock and the bulls all over the body. You know, and then a huge hailstorm where God says, you know what? Get everything inside because anything outside it's going to die. And then the locusts come. And I mean, the, the cattle are gone. You're talking about an economic disaster. You know, all their farm, all their land is gone. All their crops have died. And then becomes uh, the plague of darkness for three days. Which is so crazy because it says where God's people, you know, it was so dark they wouldn't go anywhere. They couldn't see anything. But where God's people, it's still light. So it's like, like if this is God's land where it's like you're dark here and now you're in light. I mean, I, how did God do that? And then after the last plague, Pharaoh was so mad, he goes, Moses, get out of here, and if I see you again, I am going to kill you the next time I see you. And Moses looks back at him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. About midnight, I'll go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who sits at her handmill, And all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be Loud, there will be found loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be again. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And Scripture says that when Moses left there, he was hot with anger. Pharaoh, it didn't have to be this way. All your people, all your nation, all those family, all those children, they did not have to die. But because you're so proud, and you refuse to listen to God, that's why all this is happening. Why did you let it happen? Look what your pride is costing you. And the 10th plague happened exactly as Moses said it would. The firstborn son of every Egyptian died. And the pain it caused rocked the entire empire. Now, now whether you're young or old, if you are a firstborn male, would you stand up and remain standing? If you're a firstborn male, stand up. All first four males, stand up. Keep standing. Okay? 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 You can be seated. All gone. All gone. Uh, They're going to die tonight. If that were to happen tonight, I I would lose my son John. I I I would lose my brother. I I I would lose my grandson. I mean, can you imagine the pain in Egypt that night? You see, God wanted everybody to know who he was, that he's real, and that he's powerful, and that if you play ball with God, you're not going to get hurt. But if you don't play ball with God, if you think you can oppose God, it's not going to work out for you. A pastor called E.V. Hill, he says, you know, your arms are too short to box with God. You know, I'm going to get you, God. You know, he's just going to pound you. He's going to pound you. And that's why throughout these chapters in Exodus, you see time and time again, God says, when I do this, Israel's going to know and everyone's going to know that I am the Lord. And after these plagues, everyone throughout Egypt, they saw the power of God and they saw the foolishness of ignoring him. And so we have this massive exodus out of Egypt. Two to three million people. That's a lot of people. You know, if, if we would stand, if four people across, it would be 375 miles long. I don't know a place 375 miles away, but just say that Charlotte, North Carolina is 375 miles away, okay? 
That would mean that when the first people get in Charlotte, North Carolina, the people of the end hadn't even left Charlottesville yet. That's how many people he's leading out of slavery. And God's guiding them to a new life that God has for them. By cloud, by, by day, a fire by night. You know, God has their back. God has their front. You know, the, the, the clouds are going to keep some of the heat off during the day. It's going to keep, the fire will keep them warm at night. And eventually Pharaoh's like, hey, you know what? That wasn't such a good idea. Now, now, now we're going to start making our own bricks. I say we go kill them. And everybody goes, yeah, we should kill them because I'm pretty, you know, we lost family members. And so a massive army, the most powerful army at the time, begins an assault on them. Hundreds of chariots heading towards them. And, and Moses' people, they're just trucking along. They get to the Red Sea. Whoa, okay, I guess we were everywhere. We'll, oh, oh, no, we can't go that way. Because the Egyptians are barreling down on us. You know what they say to Moses? Thanks a lot, Moses. Not enough graves in Egypt? I mean, I, did you just bring us out here to die? Aren't you glad we don't complain like them? I mean, aren't you glad that God got that out of our system? And I want you to watch what happens. This man of insecurity and inadequacy, the shepherd who struggles with public speaking, this is what he says with confidence. Man, I love this. Exodus 14, verse 13. I mean, picture it. I mean, you, you, you got nowhere to go, and you got this army wanting to kill you. You don't have any weapons. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And then one of the most famous miracles in the Bible, it's mentioned hundreds of times again and again. Moses raises his staff. God creates a great wind. And I lived in Florida. You know, wind can move water, right? Guarantee it can move a lot of water. And God parts the sea. And they walk on dry ground. I don't know about you, I, I would have poked the water, wouldn't you? Like, I'd have poked it. I'd have poked it. No, I poked it. I mean, if it was like a fishbowl. And then once all God's people crossed, the waters close and every Egyptian is killed. Wiped out. Not one survived. And the Israelites realize that they are free at last. There's no more slavery. That everything happened just as God said because he is the Lord. Wow, what an awesome story. Just a few quick moments. I want to talk about some upper story truths that explode, that explode from the story. And the first one is that God sees and God cares. Question, are you going through our time right now? Is life kind of tough, kind of difficult? I stand before you and proclaim to you with full confidence that God sees and God cares. Exodus chapter 3 says, And the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people to Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. See, God is always wanting to take us from where we are to where he wants us to be. To bring them up out of that land, that land of slavery, into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. God sees and God cares. But if I could be honest with you, there are times in my life where I didn't believe that. 
Yeah, well, my first wife is dying of cancer. Like, I, do, do you see? And if you see, you obviously don't care because you ain't doing a thing about it. And maybe if you see and you're not doing something, maybe you're not as powerful as, as I thought you were. You know, but he is. And that's why I can so relate to these words the, the, the prophet Isaiah penned in Isaiah 49 where he says it like this. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. He's forgotten me. He doesn't see how hard it is at home. He don't see the stress I have on the job, uh, the finances. He doesn't care about my marriage. He, 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 he's forgot all about me. And the guy says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls that are broken down because of the enemy, your walls, your pain, your hardship, your difficulties are always before me. God will not, God has not forgotten you. God sees and God cares and God is the great I am. Understand, for every cry of our heart, there is but one answer, I am. And I'm going to read some statements to you. And after each statement, I want you to answer back with all the gusto you have. I am. Fully believing that God is powerful and cares and can do anything. And that he's the one that makes a difference. Okay? You got, I'm going to say a statement and you say I am. With power, conviction, and passion. Because it's true. I need help. I, I need hope. I, I need a fresh start. I, I need a reason to go on. This is way too big for me. My marriage is crashing and I don't know where to turn. I I can't hold on. Who can I really trust? I I feel alone and overwhelmed. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm worried. I'll never get beyond this. I'll never overcome this. I I can't. I am. am. Praise God. God sees, God cares. He's a great I am. And the, 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 yeah. I didn't make a bit of that up. And it's, it's gooder than even I just explained. <laughs> Another truth that explodes is God calls. Maple Grove. It's just like in the days of Moses, God looks across the world. He looks across this country, this community, where you live, where you work, where you go to school. And God sees pain. And God sees heartache. God sees hungry children that need food. God sees three million orphans that need a mom and dad. God sees marriages that are falling apart. God sees homes that are being devastated, Lord, because of sin and addictions. God sees a hurting world, and he cares. He cares, and he calls us, his people, to do something about it. See, God God delivers, but he always works through people. He works through us. I love Isaiah 6 where God is saying, then I heard the Lord asking, "Uh, whom shall I send as a messenger messenger to this people? They're they're hurting people in Charlottesville. There's hurting people where you go to school. There's hurting people all over. Who will go for us? Here I am. Send me. Maple Grove, God has called us to be the light of the world, a city on a hill. In Matthew chapter 9, we read this. When 
when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He didn't say, you know what? You got no one but yourself to blame. You shouldn't have started doing drugs to begin with. You should have been faithful to your spouse. You shouldn't have done all those wrong things. You only got yourself to blame for what you're... He didn't do that. When Jesus saw hurting people, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. And Maple Grove, God is calling us, his people, in the year 2013 beyond, to unleash his compassion on this world, on this community, like never before. Maple Grove, God is calling us to be his church, to be a church that makes a difference. My email is steve at maplegrove, maple-grove.org. And you know, some of us, I'm forming a team that's been reading the book, The Externally Focused Quest, Becoming the Best Church for the community, for the community, to let the community know that we're here, that we're here to make a difference, to make a difference for him. And I want you to know that, that as your pastor, one of my visions for our church is that we are going to unleash the love of God in this community like never, ever, ever before. We're going we're gonna to see people who are helpless and harassed, and we're going to do something about it. We're just not going to go to church. We're going to be the church. We're going to know we're here. They're not, not, not because our parking lot is full on Sundays, but because we're doing something to make a difference. And God delivers. He always takes people from where they are to where he wants them to be. He delivers people from slavery to freedom. He still does that today, right? Now Moses was in the desert, not a slave to Egypt, but he was a slave to his fear. He was slave to his fear. And Jesus talks about us being slaves to sin. And maybe your day you're a slave to something. Something's got a hold of you and you can't let it go. And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is still in the delivery business. Even like the post office, he delivers on Saturday and Sundays, right? He delivers all the time. I just make that one up. It wasn't that good. All right. And, and <laughs> he delivers, and he can deliver you today from anything that's holding you back. He delivers from despair to hope. And he delivers from death to life. See, the exodus, it's a salvation story, right? God delivered them. And once God set his mind, nothing could stop him from delivering them. And once Jesus Christ has burst forth from the grave, nothing can stop what Jesus wants to do. As we wrap up, I just want to mention something I skipped over on intentionally, real briefly, is that why weren't God's people killed when the death angel came? Well, because God told them to do something, and they did it. God said, I want you to get a lamb, and and I want you to paint blood on the doorpost of your house. And, 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 and when, if I was there, I, I'd have put like 12 coats. <laughs> okay, you know, maybe I'll let it dry. Okay, put another coat. I'd have put 12, 13 coats, all right? And, and because of the blood of the lamb, death passed over. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, death, sin, and its consequences pass over us. We're saved by the same thing they're saved by, the blood of the Lamb. And how do we contact that blood? You know, I had the opportunity, and we're, we're going to wrap up, and, but this is, you know, this is a family right here um, from China, and, and, and they're about to be baptized into Christ. And, and, and 
And yes, you sit back there, Remember that host home thing we talked about? Well, Bard and Glenda Atkins, you know, you know uh, Priscilla is a freshman. That's her English name. Priscilla is a freshman at, at UVA, and the, the Atkins are their host family. God was working in Roger's life. No church he could go to, but, but God found a way to get the word to Roger. And, and we sat for an hour in there talking about God and getting right with God and how you need to hear God's word. And God found a way. God's word's not chained. God's word got the, got the Roger. And I said, Roger, once you hear it, you got to believe it, that Jesus is who he said he is and, and that he did what he said he did. And then you need to repent. You need to say, you know what? I've been living as my own boss and it kind of stinks. It's not working out so good. And I want to live for God. He's my boss. He's my Lord. And, and then we have to confess him as Lord. And we have to be, we have to be baptized. We have to be buried in Christ. You know, the, a picture of the very thing that saves us, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talk for an hour. And in and, and, and just a few minutes, you know, some, what's going to happen is the blood of the Lamb is going to be applied to your lives. And your sins are going to be forgiven, washed away. And God's Spirit is going to come and live inside of you. And, and we're going to... Amen. God is so good. And, and what we're going to do, we're, we're going we're gonna to sing this song. And, you know, if maybe that's you today. You know, maybe that's a decision you need to make. You've not been buried in, in, in the waters of baptism yet. You can do that. You know, if you're not sure you want to do it publicly, I'm going to hang up here right after church. You can come talk to me about it. Or maybe you need some prayer because, you know what, something's got a hold of you. You know it. And you need God to deliver you out of whatever bondage the enemy has on you. But we're going to sing this closing song, and then right after the song is over, you know, we're going to talk, we're going to take communion. You know, we're going to celebrate and remember what causes sin's consequences to pass over us, the blood of Jesus. So would you all stand? I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing this song. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. You're great and awesome. You are deliverer. And we think about you, God. One thing we just know, where will we be? Without your love, we still be lost in darkness. And Father, I pray that as we sing this song to you, God, that we sing it from the depths of our soul and we celebrate who you are and that you are a great, awesome, incredible deliverer. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right.